Welcome to this special edition of the Guernsey Press Arts Podcast with me, Simon Delarue. In this edition, we'll hear from Guernsey's foremost classical musician, David LePage, who travels back to his home island regularly to perform, but who is based in England, where he is artistic director of the Orchestra of the Swan in Warwick. He began playing the violin at the age of seven and was offered a place at the Yehudi Menuhin School aged 12. He has since forged a diverse career as a performer, composer, producer and arranger. As you'll hear, David's interests span several genres and he is as enthusiastic about telling the world about Guernsey as he is about breaking down the perceived barriers between classical and popular music. Back in the late summer when things were drier and we had more trees, I caught up with David at the conclusion of Pilgrimage to Bach, his three-night sequence of candlelit concerts at the Vale, St Peter's and St Peterport churches, where his playing of some very complex pieces by J.S. Bach was preceded by Gregorian chant and readings of T.S. Eliot's poetry. I began by asking David to recall the first time he'd been conscious of really being grabbed by music. I think it was quite a physical thing, certainly in relation to the violin. I remember very clearly um, picking up the violin for the first time. My sister had started the cello because it was in the uh, mid-70s, maybe 76, 77, 78, uh, possibly, and the music service had just started. And she was offered a cello and... Uh, my parents said, oh, well, you, you know, you may as well learn something. Why not the violin? You know, here's a violin. Managed to get hold of one of those. And I remember picking that instrument up for the first time and understanding it physically, how it worked, how you drew the bow across the string, you know, right from the beginning. And it was just a, such luck. Uh, I look back on it now because I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without that uh, physically matching and understanding that particular instrument, because if they give me a wind instrument, I don't know how to get the sound out. It doesn't make any sense to me in that way that, that the violin does. And I understood how that sort of confluence of bow and string and the, you know, bringing the right and the left hands together, how that actually worked. So uh, I think more than a piece of music initially, but there was that physical thing. But I was always interested in the idea of performing um uh i'm not uh particularly religious now but um the the churches that i grew up going to were these sort of evangelical charismatic they were like something from the deep south of the united states but over here and i think it's uh i think it's quite a hotbed of those kind of small uh uh kind of almost cultish churches if you like but the one thing about them was partly the sort of gospel and blues influenced music and the the way the the preachers performed and they would often have visiting preachers from america and it was a lot of sort of fire and brimstone but very sort of charismatic and dramatic and i liked the idea even before musically but the idea of performance and you know there were certain preachers who could uh, you know, what was it about them that made them able to command uh, uh, well, an audience, a congregation? Um, and it wasn't even the content of what they were saying, or was it the way that they said that? And and I think that fed into, so when I got a violin in my hands, I think I related those two things. Uh, as so I did say, you quite quickly get to a point where you felt 
you were able to command the attention of, of a given audience through your own playing. Yeah, I think the violin became something else in that sense. And it wasn't until later when I realized I could use that in, in, in the same way. And that, that, that was my uh, instrument and my way of uh, communicating. And that was my voice as well. It's the one thing with teachers growing up, I you know learned lots of interesting things from teachers. But uh, in the classical world, there's not really much emphasis on finding your particular voice. And I think that was something I discovered much uh, later. And, uh, you know, sometimes you can try and change your playing over the years to sound like someone else or, but no one ever says to you, actually, that what you have there, that thing for better or worse is that that's your voice. That's the, the you know, the, the connection. And it's interesting thinking of that with uh, uh, an instrument like the violin but there, there are certain ways you have of approaching it I think the sound that I made when I first picked up the violin at the age of seven is essentially the same as the sound I make now obviously I've got a different instrument uh, but that way of approaching it that's quite hard to change but it's something that's quite precious and something that you should sort of hold on to I think um, I think that's sort of a roundabout way of <laughs> getting uh, it, it, yeah I, I think it's bound up with performance and communication and your own particular voice and and people my, my wife is um a, a violinist as well and she's always emphasizing that fact that don't you know however you don't, don't try and play like someone else just just play like you that's that's the important thing that's what people want to hear they don't want to hear necessarily perfection or you sounding like a certain school of violin playing or you know it's about the music and the uh, and the personal voice as well I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have had some experience of, of uh, playing music from a from a written score, but um, very few to anything like the level that you play at. So I'm I'm curious to know um, to what degree uh, what what you're playing is prescribed, uh, and to how much of yourself you're able to bring to it. So is it is it uh, you know the bowing and the phrasing and just the you know the the minutest sort of elongations of a certain note that that give your voice uh, uh, room to breathe, or, or, or you know, can you talk around that about yeah. how how that comes about? Sure, there's a historical thing as well. As music has progressed, uh, I think Beethoven was the sort of turning point where he prescribed almost everything in terms of phrase marks and the minutiae of what's on the page, and it's to do with his personality of wanting to be in control. But if we go back to Bach, and it's interesting having done that that project last last weekend over, over three evenings, he's the point where there's not an awful lot written down, uh, so you have to guess there's quite a lot. And, and pre-Bach, so sort of pre-Baroque, medieval, there's, there's hardly anything. It's very... Um, of course, there's lots of complexity in bark, but in terms of dynamics and markings and you know, whether you should be louder or softer or faster or slower, the, there's there's quite a lot of um, interpretive leeway. So if you you know go to any streaming service and you click through the same movement of bark, uh, solo bark uh, on recordings, you'll hear lots of different tempos and uh, uh, approaches. Less so as you get into the sort of romantic era and where the metronome came in. So, and as it gets to sort of contemporary twentieth century time, people are prescribing exactly the speeds. So, crotchet equals one hundred and thirty-eight for this, and uh, 
you know, even someone like Elgar, sort of, who's sort of late romantic, but was writing up to the you know 1930s, every single note has got about four dynamics. And so there's something about humanity wanting to be absolutely in, in control. But Bach is a be- sort of beautiful midpoint where uh, uh, both of those things are happening. So his personality is there, but he's leaving a lot of uh, uh, leeway. And in the Brock times, the improvisation was kind of part of the whole thing as well, um, playing a piece uh, by a uh, German composer, uh, Bieber, B-I-B-E-R, not like, not Justin Bieber. <laughs> um, and uh, again, sort of late 1600s into sort of 1700s, and he just leaves so much room for colour and interpretation. And I'm very drawn to that music because because of that. And... Um, there is interpretive leeway later on, but it's interesting how that that has developed. So to answer your question, later music, uh, you're a little bit more constrained by the sort of auteurish personality of the composer and earlier music. Um, they weren't thinking like that. They were relying on performers and, and, and the voices of the performers and the personality of the, of the performers to, to get that across. As I say, from Beethoven's time, he's like, I want it this way. You're going, to, you're going to do it this this yeah. way. Seems ironic, really. The, the, the romantics were the ones being prescriptive and re- restrictive, in in a sense. But um, uh, how quickly then did you get to the point where you found you you could identifiably say, "Well, this is this is my voice." And how does it feel to to be playing, feeling that you know you're creating uh, using your own voice? And how important is the instrument itself to that for a violinist? It's an ongoing process, uh, so it depends uh, what I'm playing and how I'm feeling at the time. Every performance you come to, no matter how much you've prepared, there's a slightly different dynamic uh, You know, with the audience. As soon as you walk out on stage, it's totally different from being backstage, and you never quite know what you're going to get. So you try and sort of prepare in all ways. But in terms of the voice, I think writing my own music and playing my own music uh, has helped develop that. So that's my most natural form of uh, communication. So uh, when I'm playing my own stuff, the way that I write it, either on the violin or another instrument, the way that I interpret it, I'm not, I always feel as, as a composer that when I've written it, it's not really mine, it just sort of goes out there. And, and I always write music with a slightly sort of improvisatory. Uh, element to it as well um so there's a lot of room for freedom but that discovering that voice has just sort of developed over time i think in my 20s i was still sort of bound by this idea that there are certain schools of thought for you know how you played the violin technically and you know what you should be doing musically and then i've sort of dropped those over the years and uh uh and and really began to trust that 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 voice that I have and that that sort of developing thing and, and is constantly uh, developing and to the point where I can now listen to recordings of m- myself which is not an easy thing to do because it's you know it's very exposing and and just accept it and uh but there was a point where I think the the problem was I was listening to myself on recordings and um thinking oh it should be sounding like that person, but now I can recognise it just sounds like me, and that, that's that's fine. But I think that comes with uh, maturity and age as well, and just accepting that's the way it is. 
And uh, um, you were mentioning there that, that about writing your own uh, material. How long have you been doing that? When when did you did that I've, come at the start? Or? I've always done that. I did that when I was at school and uh, sort of experimented with sort of tape machines and sort of concrete music and that kind of thing. And um, and then quite romantic music. And I was in groups which were kind of sort of zapparesque kind of pop things and I'd play guitar and sang and so I would write in that way and classically as well. I did, I did a lot of sort of hardline contemporary classical music um, with very small audiences um, but was, it were kind of very interesting to do work with uh, interesting people and that was quite exacting in some ways. You know, we were talking about the amount of stuff, the minutiae that's on the page. I mean, contemporary music is is very you know specific in in those terms but that that was interesting so i would write in that style as well uh and then i've just uh, eventually in terms of writing found a voice which is somewhere between um there there is an intensity to it but there's a kind of folky flavor as well a bluesy thing which uh, has been there since i was really young which comes through and i've just now just let it come through because i think it's an, an important element in what i do um so that is a mixture of sort of contemporary classical, um, uh, the, the bluesy thing, the folky thing, and uh, and it, it's now becoming less um, compartmentalised. So it's just sort of all mixes together in a good way, rather than me thinking, right, I'm going to write it in that particular style, or you know, it's become a, a natural thing for me. But it, but it takes a while to find that thing. I think some people you know find it earlier, but. Um, but for me, certainly, it's it's been part of the development and part of the development of the playing as well. It helps. If I'm improvising, I'm not thinking about tuning or technique or anything. I'm just thinking about the sound and the, the uh, communication and the emotion of, of the music. So composition and playing is very helpful. These days, it's interesting, there used to be a lot of composer-performers uh, in the classical world. It's quite rare these days. There's a, you know, I think it's heading off in that direction again, but it was certainly the composers do this and the performers do this and, and, and never the twain shall meet. But I think there's a little bit more of that. And it's quite, I don't find it anymore, but I used to find it very exposing playing your own music because not only were people, uh, you imagined, you know, looking at your playing, but they were uh, looking at the, the, that process of composition, so it felt doubly personal and doubly exposing. It, and yet, in contemporary music, it's just the norm, isn't it? That people write their own songs and perform their Absolutely. own songs. Yeah. Um, but so there, there is a uh, there is a marked difference there, isn't there, between perceptions within classical music and perceptions within mm -hmm. within contemporary music? It seems to me that your a lot of your work has, uh, if not sought to break down those uh, barriers, uh, at least sort of explored them and um, you know possibly even undermined them a bit. You've got quite an eclectic sort of mi a mix of projects that you've been involved with. Um, you've got the orchestra of the Swan, obviously, I've, I've written them down here. There's so many. The LePage Ensemble, the Harborough Collective, Subway Piranhas, Mysterious Barricades, obviously your uh, involvement locally with uh, the Town Church Strings and Camera Obscura back in the, back yeah. in the day. Um, and, and then you've put out albums that are quite deliberately mixing styles. So it's, is it an important thing for you to um, 
Well, what, what, what is the aim there? Are you hoping to draw in people who uh, uh, follow one style of music to um, think differently about other styles, or is it just more of a personal venture for you to 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 just uh, do music and then allow the barriers to melt away, or what is it? Well, it's certainly something I've thought even more about since becoming artistic director of the Orchestra of the Swan, which is based in Warwick and was based in Stratford for years. I led it for a number of years, and then I became artistic director and uh, in doing the job, you know, you're shaping the program and the kind of vision for the orchestra. And I, I just started thinking a lot about the way that classical music is perceived and um, why it gets a certain audience that it does and why sometimes they're very small and, you know, why uh, I'm quite passionate about that side of things. And I, and I think sometimes it's the, it's the image of it. And I've written about this, about that sort of curious sort of late 19th century ambience that it has which i think is unhelpful for certain audiences who don't want to be associated with that i think essentially um i worked with um, the journalist uh, paul morley who thrived the enemy and he was sort of late convert to classical music and has written this brilliant book about classical music which i think all classical musicians who are involved in that world should read and all and people uh who are not drawn to it should read because it sort of uh, is very attractive from both sides. Yeah. Basically, the premise of it is that there's nothing wrong with the music itself. It's um, you know going from medieval times through to sort of baroque and romantic and contemporary. The music is edgy and meditative and accessible and communicative and difficult and all of those things. Um, so it, it, in, in terms of the nuts and bolts of what's going out, it doesn't have an image problem there. It's what's, and I feel this very strongly, it's what is associated with it. And it can become, I like the idea of rituals, but there's a sort of classical music ritual in terms of concerts, which is sort of uncomfortable to be around. It's about the, you know, when to applaud, how to behave in this and how to dress. So immediately working with the orchestra as artistic director, got rid of the dress, tried to... Um, program concerts in venues which were more unusual as theatre spaces and, and, and to light things, um, you know, because walking into a space is very important, as you know, from working in the theatre, you know, so that that creates a certain ambience for the uh, audience immediately. Um, so I think there's a lot that classical music can learn um, in terms of the way it portrays itself. And, and I found that a lot of my work with the orchestra has been uh, around that. And some of those changes are kind of, they tend to be, well, they're very popular with new audiences, uh, less popular with um, people who think it should uh, be presented in a certain way. Um, and I, I don't mind that now. I'm, I'm not, I don't mind that, Christian, because I think it's important work to do. And, um, and so in terms of programming, it means um, interesting juxtaposition. So uh, maybe so you have a Beethoven symphony uh, next to uh, a version of a song by Radiohead and then something from the 20th century. And what I try and avoid in terms of programming is doing overture concerto symphony, which is what people expect. And the, the problem with that is 
as Paul Morley says, you know, the mu music is incredible. So you forget how amazing that Beethoven symphony is because you've you've heard the overture, you've got the concerto, and then you've got at, at the end this this symphony. And so your mind isn't really blown by it anymore because the context is what, what you would expect. But if you hear that in relation to something completely unexpected, you suddenly think, wow, this is... Uh, and all the best music is completely out of time. It's not really connected to a... An era, and I think sometimes in the world of classical music, in relation to audiences, it wants to sort of pin it down to that sort of what is regarded as a pinnacle of that sort of late nineteenth uh, century era, with the tales and the audiences in in rows and that kind of thing. But um, so yeah, I, I I feel really passionate about that. I know that it's not for everyone, um, but I think the the rewards of being able to connect with new people and say, you know, we could play these, what are perceived as incredibly complicated, um, mind-blowing late Beethoven quartets in um, in a bar or a pub or something like that, uh, you're going to feel more comfortable in that, that particular atmosphere. And I believe that no, you know, music no music is too complicated to listen to anybody can get something out it's like the poems of t.s Eliot. you don't have to understand every single nuance and every single reference it's great if you can but you're still going to get something from that thing so so as long as the environment is right and people want to be in that environment you could present this um extraordinary music or or, or some very hardline contemporary music some xenarchists or some uh, interesting john cage or something and people will be ready for it if the context is right, I think. It, it seems possibly to be an approach born from uh, a generation, our generation, that was that was the first to be able to sort of labour over the process of making compilation tapes throughout their entire youth. Mm. <laughs> which track works with which mm. next track and how yeah. to... That's how, how I think. Get, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, we spoke at length, of course, about the uh, pilgrimage to Bach uh, uh, project that, um, prior to it um, when we spoke on on this podcast feed. And uh, for listeners who haven't heard that, then you can go back to the first of our August editions for that to to hear about it. Um, I, as I was watching you perform uh, in the town church the other night, I, w I was uh, pondering um, the degree to which you were able to let go in the moment of playing, for example, the last uh, movement of the, the last of the uh, Bach uh, sonatas uh, that was... Chicago. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> which, which I was reliably informed was the one that would be most familiar uh, to the audience. Um, but, uh, it, I mean, it, technically, it's phenomenally demanding. And, and I imagine there are not too many violinists who can actually pull it off at all. Um, uh, and... Uh, I wonder how demanding it is for you to perform and whether you're able to go into a performance like that, um, being able to trust your preparation to the degree, to the degree that you can relax into it or, 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 and, and convey your, and express your emotions or, or are you having to really minutely focus on the mechanical process? I think it depends. I, I mean, I, worked up this i've played them all, all my life the sonatas and partitas and it's, they're very interesting because they change depending on what age you are and i keep trying to record them and then i record them and think oh no i'm not really sure of that i'm not going to like that in 10 years uh but maybe i've reached a stage where I'd, I'd like to do that now but i i think in terms of how you feel in the performance i've prepared for a year 
with these pieces. They're quite hard to practice in a way because um, it's not like other music where you feel you can sort of break it down. And, and I did do a lot of decision making about it, but I wanted it to come about kind of organically. But in the moment, I think it varies hugely. Uh, for example, in the last concert, it was a little darker than I expected, which I think is great for the audience, but I couldn't see my pedal turn the pages. So that, that little things like that kind of uh, external things can, can worry you. And, but if there's enough preparation, I think there's going to be a, a baseline which it doesn't sort of drop below. So, so that's sort of technical preparation and, and knowing what you want to do musically. And then sometimes, and it would go in, in waves, there were some movements where it felt wonderful and then I'd start another movement and uh, I would think, oh, we're going to concentrate a little bit more here and I'm going to go bar by bar in terms of, uh, or, or phrase by phrase. And it's this doesn't feel easy for some reason. I couldn't have second guessed that, but then the next movement would be fine. But from an audience point of view, I don't think they would be noticing that particular process, but it, it is even if you're incredibly well prepared, those things um, can crop up at any time. So I think if you have that in the back of your mind, then that's part of the preparation that, okay, anything can happen and I know what to do in in that particular situation. And to what extent can you uh, re enjoy the performances like that? Uh, yeah, again, that goes in waves. And for example, I've really enjoyed playing the Chacon. It's, it's a little bit more familiar to me than most other things. I mean, people think it is a, a monumental thing, which it is musically, but it was always felt quite comfortable and it sort of knows where it's going. There are some other smaller movements in the bark which are harder to bring across and they sometimes surprise me in, the, in those three days of, of playing and I wasn't expecting them to feel like that. And then other things in, in the second concert did this huge C major fugue and uh, my wife absolutely loved that and for, for me it felt like a struggle. And she said, no, it didn't sound like that at all. You know, it sounded... Um, so sometimes your perception and the audience perception is 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 miles apart. But I think that's to do with the year of preparation and everything that's gone gone into it. And um, and, and in terms of the bark, the, it's an ongoing project, really. Every time you perform them, they're going to feel different. So it was lovely to do it this time. It was probably the most satisfying uh, time I've ever done it. Sometimes the enjoyment comes afterwards when you think, okay, I've got the feeling of the whole and that worked, even though I had a bad time in that particular movement. But things like, you know, technically the, you know, the, 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 the tuning and the left hand and what the bow is doing, that's generally there. It's not going to kind of, uh, uh, shudder too much in terms of going off in a direction you don't want it to. So there are definitely moments that I can enjoy or, find transcendent that's the that's the best place to be where things are just happening and i think that happened in the chicane the last the very last movement it was this feeling of okay everything's together and this works and it feels physically great and i can enjoy and i can turn the phrases where i want them to go and, and with a preparation time of that duration does that mean that at any one time you're always sort of preparing for a number of different things uh, you can't just uh, sort of go from one project to another can you guess you've got a plan ahead yeah i mean i like to do these days slightly less concerts and a bit more preparation for them so what i did with the bark was i would uh get try and get that as much as possible into my everyday practice so i'd have a program i was working on for the orchestra or a solo thing or a chamber thing so i would 
have that and that but I would always go back to the bar because it was almost like uh, a meditation at the beginning of the practice I would take one of the sonatas parties and I played through or I'd practice certain movements and I would just constantly be doing it, which has been an amazing thing for the for the last year to be able to do that and then there'd be some technical practice as well but I used the bark as you know if I was going to try and since those initial um, discussions with uh, Richard Delarue, um I thought okay I can you know fit this in every day it's going to be good for me to do as well and um, so that that's the way it works and it, it feels like now I'd, I'd really miss doing that every day so it wouldn't be a bad thing if I continued to do that I think uh, Casals the um, the uh, Catalan cellist um, I think he would play Bach on the keyboard every day just uh, just uh, one of the preludes or fugues it was a way of kind of centering himself emotionally and, and musically and I suppose that's what the the the, the sonatas and partitas were doing with me they're, they're quite different in the sense that they're quite because they're on the violin and they're very involved and um uh and quite complex uh they're sort of less meditative in some ways I think the cello ones are very it would work very well in a sort of pilgrimage to park type um environment uh because of the register of the instrument and um, uh, the, there's nothing sort of jarring in it, you know, so it's interesting. But the the violin ones are quite sort of performative and, you know, they're leaping around the instrument all the time. And, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do the project like this is because I, I realised that programming those pieces is really hard. They, um, for, you know, for an audience, they're, they're a very intense experience. So uh, having the, the T.S. Eliot words having the tibetan bells having the gregorian chant was a way uh, it was a, a different context and a, and a way of um appreciating them and getting the audience ready to, to to listen to that and they knew that you know after 20 minutes that would stop and then you'd get the, the words and the gregorian chant again and i think that's important that an audience knows that and these were Guernsey audiences, of course, that, that were able to come along to these venues. Um, and Guernsey is clearly still very important to you, despite your now being based in England, because um, you do come back and visit quite frequently. And you've also uh, um, had this project uh, in about five years ago, I think, the, the book of Ebenezer LePage. Mm. Um, could you tell us about that particular project and why uh, Guernsey continues to sort of draw you back home, as it were? Every time I come back, I find it the more and more extraordinary. Uh, not only its physical beauty, but something about the character which is utterly unique. And I did appreciate it when I was younger, but I definitely appreciate it more now. And there's something uh, in terms of the projects I do related to the island. It's trying to capture what I imagine to be that particular characteristic of the island, whether it was working on the, the Mervyn Peak project and, you know, his response to being in these islands or the Victor Hugo. Um, and then the Ebenezer LePage is something I grew up with. I, I remember listening to, I think it was Roy Dutrice reading uh, excerpts from the book on the radio. And, uh, and it, in the back of my mind, I wanted to do something with it. It seemed like the, the obvious choice, but maybe make the music not uh, as obviously um, 
I mean, I thought about trying to to, to to find you know specific local music, and I did that with one of the one of the tunes, and then then sort of reimagined that. But it was a lovely project because I loved uh, I loved the book, and and so was able to take various episodes, and then in my own own particular musical style, which for that album was sort of a kind of minimalist, sort of beautiful, uh, sometimes energetic. Um, uh, you know, some things were reflective of particular things in the book. For example, the first piece was called My Heart Longs for Thee, which is a line from Sanya Shari. And uh, I used little elements of that tune within the piece that that was for. And then, and I also, I thought, if I just do it for violin and piano, it can travel well. I'm able to do it uh, in other places i did it quite a few times in england and it went down really well and people didn't know about the book and were drawn to the book and read it because of you know so so that that was a uh, a really nice thing but um and it's something I, I think i can probably repurpose those uh those pieces of music and arrange them for for other ensembles as well so they will work um for expanded ensembles rather than violin and piano as well but it's very important to me to and i will continue to do that if i can um uh, uh create projects which are connected w w with the island because there is something about it i suppose you're if you're doing it over here you're you know you're connecting with people who sort of understand what that means but but also that the excitement of playing it to people who don't know anything about the island and um I think it's quite easy to misrepresent the island. Um, I don't know if you can put this in the podcast, but the <laughs> there, uh, some of my kids were watching this five, uh, six-part series on Channel Five with Alan Titchmarsh. Oh yeah, doing yeah. and uh, they're basically advertorials, I think. And but I think there's a much more. There's such an interesting story to be told about the island an extraordinary uh story which i suppose we're trying to do in in in, in bits and uh, we all know this um uh but there's something sort of quite lowest common denominator about that particular thing anyway so you're, you're wanting to sort of communicate um that there is more to guernsey than you know, the the headlines people might have heard people tend to think yeah low tax jurisdiction or tax haven as they might put it mm. um you know uh, just just some basics about our location and that sort of thing and a lot of people don't know much about the history or they might know about the occupation a little bit i mean in my other work as a tour guide i'm quite familiar with these um you know perceptions. basic perceptions yeah um so is there a particular thing about guernsey that you're eager to put out there and convey to wider audiences or is it just the the rich complexity of it it's the rich complexity and i think um it would be easy to visit the island and just dismiss that and not get it and not understand it it's almost like you you know you might need someone with you you know you, you could i was like that with any place i suppose you could go somewhere and get the completely the wrong idea if you you know if you're in the wrong situation or with um, people who aren't sympathetic to that, but I feel passionate about it because I was born here and I feel that I understand it and I would like to communicate that to other people. I feel I can do that through the medium of music and um, and performances and um, and that feels important to me. So I'm always looking for 
new projects that are related to that. I think even the pilgrimage to Bach was about the ancient spaces of Guernsey as well. So rather than performing in one place, you know, sort of, you know, that almost like a mini tour all over the islands of these wonderful, very contrasting churches and places of uh, worship, which people might not, even if they lived here, might not visit for for years, you know, and uh, to reconnect with them. So, so, so it was definitely, you know, part of the literally the, the fabric of the, the island was, uh, you know, uh, an element in that project, which was very important, I think. David LePage there, speaking to me during his visit to Guernsey in August. You can find out more about David's work at orchestraoftheswan.org and you'll find the Orchestra of the Swan on Facebook as well. That's all for this special edition of the Guernsey Press Arts Podcast. Look out for further editions and for comprehensive coverage of the arts in the pages of our newspaper, available physically or digitally six days a week. Bye for now. Bye for now.